Welcome to another episode of Cloud and Culture. I'm Danielle Burrow from VMware. And I am Derek Harris from VMware. This week, we're once again speaking with Sean Anderson of VMware Tanzu Labs, this time along with his colleague, Brandon Blinko. And our topic is retail, everything you wanted to know about modernizing e-commerce platforms, inventory management, installing Kubernetes clusters at the edge, and ultimately, how modernizing your systems opens up new possibilities for a better brand experience. This is the third and final in a series of podcasts we're doing around the app modernization process using the SWIFT method, along with best practices and patterns Tanzu Labs has established for different industry verticals. Our last one was on financial services. And even if you don't work in retail, you want to listen to pick up some strategies for improving how you think about complex systems and very possibly your customer experience as well. Welcome, Sean and Brandon. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Brandon, could you go ahead and give us a quick introduction of who you are, what you do here at VMware, and then we'll pass it on to Sean. Sure, sure. First off, thanks for having me. I'm Brandon Blinko. I'm part of Tanzu Labs in the app modernization practices area. A lot of what I do is spending time with clients, reasoning about their portfolio of apps, digging deep with the Swift method to understand areas of dependencies, where we should be focusing modernization, and, and, and giving them an actionable roadmap. So I think I'll pass it over to Sean. Yeah, thanks. And thanks for having me once again, guys. I appreciate it. I'm Sean Anderson, and I am part of the Tanzu Labs modernization practice, principal architect, but I also really just spend all my time trying to help customers solve the, the real challenging problems of app modernization and Maybe I should define what app modernization means from my side. It's more of, uh, I, I help customers work with applications that really aren't very suited for the new modern platforms, mainframe applications or big legacy applications that are hard to unwind. And that's kind of what I get excited about. And that's specifically what the Swift method is designed to help solve. Well, thanks for being with us again, Sean. <laughs> so today we were going to dive into app modernization in the retail space. And I think before we get started, maybe we can just do a quick overview recap of the SWIFT method, since that's something we went into detail on a couple episodes prior to this one, um, but we'll probably be referring to some of the methodologies that uh, are part of Swift. So Sean, if you could just maybe the 90 second summary of Swift would be great. <laughs> we'll, we'll try the 90 second summary. Oh, Swift basically is, is a technique that uh, we try to figure out from a complex application space, how the system wants to behave to allow us to modernize and have a target where we can go from the, the chaos of a legacy application that grew over years of use into something that, that makes a little bit of sense. And, and we really do that using several techniques that help us drill down from the business process, the, how the business works, and really identify how the software should behave to support that business. And some of the techniques you may hear us talk about are event storming, Boris, snappy design patterns, things like that. But but really, we've just broken it down into focused activities to solve specific problems and combine all of those into a solution at the end that's a modern application. And then I also think it makes sense before we really dive in to 
I, and this might sound like a dumb question, but when we when we talking about retail, like what types of companies are are we typically talking about? Yeah, we what types with, of applications even maybe? Sure, sure. I think one of the the common ones we see is the e-commerce platform. So how do we sell goods online? Some other applications we've dealt with are inventory management within the retail stores themselves. So associates would be using these software packages to let customers know we have, for instance, shoes in stock and you're looking for this particular shoe and we, we have it in stock. And, and so we have some stories we can tell around that specifically that when we get into it, Sean, do you want to add anything onto that? Yeah, I guess one of the kind of convergence activities we see a lot of is there's a lot of traditional brick and mortar stores like large construction supply stores that traditionally were in in store or maybe just starting to get an online presence. And, and there's a lot of retailers that have the same concept. You're buying products, you're selling products, you need to keep track of them. But as times evolve, and especially with COVID, we've seen cases where, you know, companies people that sell products need to, on a dime, kind of change how they do their business. And so we've spent a lot of time with that. And we've seen some uh, retailers really struggle with that. And we've seen others be very successful um, for different reasons. So it, it, it sounds like a simple space. I am just going online and buying a shoe, but there's so much that happens behind the scenes, especially with, with some of the retailers that have grown through acquisition too, right? Where one retailer is really five retailers and they all have five different systems to manage inventory, for example. And, and COVID, obviously, we mentioned that was a big, big disruption that happened in very recent memory. But what, what other challenges or disruptions or other factors were, were driving retail to modernize even pre-COVID? It seems like, because it seems like things were going that direction and the, one, the companies that were actually already on that path were able to adjust a lot faster. But I'm just curious to be like, what was it? I'm guessing there, there are some pretty obvious trends that, that were driving companies there. But I just want to hear from the horse's mouth, I guess, in terms of what, what, what these companies were trying to, why they were trying to modernize so hard even pre-COVID. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll start this one. I'll talk to, we were working with a company. We came in, we did an event storm with them. They were They wanted to modernize off of a platform that was built, and to be sold as a generic e-commerce platform. And every time that this this retailer was exporting goods, they wanted to every time they wanted to make a customization, it would turn into a big effort just to make minor changes. And it was always done through contractors, it was never done by their own staff. They were left with only being able to customize what the platform provided them. And what they started to realize was what made them a what made them to exporting goods the, the areas where they wanted to invest, they couldn't because of the technology they were using. So when we started doing an event storm, breaking their system down, figuring out where the risks and the, the problem areas were, we were able to actually pinpoint areas they should be investing in and not being not buying commercial off the shelf to, to meet that need. This is the area where this is a differentiator for you uh, and this is an area you need to invest in. And maybe Sean, you want to carry on off of that? Yeah, and there's some other interesting reasons. Like the first, and this was several years ago, but people are still trying to figure it out, is there's a lot of stores that didn't have an online presence, right? You had a brick and mortar type of store and just trying to manage a system to where they wanted to quickly be able to 
open up for customers to order something online. And it sounds like it's easy, but you know, for a lot of these stores, their inventory is actually in a physical store. It's not like a warehouse. So you'd have to ship from the store and those sorts of things. And so there was reasons for people just to try to modernize the logistics side of their their business. And <clears throat> excuse me, one of the other ones was where just just having the need to be able to, like you said, Brandon, real-time inventory or something like that was a big one. But the other interesting retail experience that I had was with a, a major phone, cell phone provider. And they had an online presence. You could buy phones and activate plans and, and things like that online. But what they didn't have was the foresight to see that when the, when the iPhone 13 comes out, the night before there's 27 million people trying to buy it online right and they they just didn't have that resilience and they saw that the 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 new platforms the new cloud and elasticity that it offers sounded great to them but their software didn't support it so that's a really good reason to modernize yeah, I want to I want to piggyback off if if I may off of something Sean said too about inventory. Another challenge with with this e-commerce platform I, I mentioned was search and being able to allow customers to search for products that are actually in stock and buy those versus find out later on in the transaction process that you put something in your cart, you went all the way to checkout, but we actually don't have any. Right. So, so being able to fulfill the orders on demand real time was, was really important for the customer experience. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like the customer, even if you go into the store to buy something, that first, that first touch point is often online right now. Do they have this in stock? Can I pick it up in my store again? Well, like whatever. So yeah, I guess yeah, getting, making sure that's accurate. I, wa- I wanted to ask too, just, just quickly following up on that was this idea of these like e-commerce platforms or kind of whatever e-commerce in a box platforms. I think what, like theoretically, if I were as a lay person, I'm going, well, so this company specializes in, in building an e-commerce solution, right? So, so why does, like, what is, what is the issue, right? What is it where so many companies I think are running on these and now realizing that they really need to, to start bringing some stuff in house? I have a, I have an example of that. What, what a lot of retailers, especially once they start to get large, they the e-commerce tools or anything that you buy off the shelf, by design, it kind of has to be generic, right? You, you can't customize things so much because there's, there's only so many things you can do with an off-the-shelf product. But it, there's cases where when you're trying to do something that sounds as simple as pricing of a product, like if you're online and you're buying a product, the the cost of the product is X, right? It's it's $5.99 for this particular product. But the larger companies wanting, or even smaller companies that want to be competitive may want to say, well, I would like to apply a discount to people who are part of our loyalty program. So the pricing of that product changes. And the, the off-the-shelf packages typically don't make it easy for you to do something like that. Or if you want to plug in some other kind of marketing or you want to say, hey, my products that are managed by that e-commerce platform, a product may now become a bundle. So my product is the little Gretzky package, which includes a hockey stick and a helmet and pads and skates. Right. But those those platforms often just by design can't support that because you can't do everything for everybody. So you just do the bare minimum. Um, 
and that that tends to drive that and there's usually a transition when when retailers or companies in general start to get big enough where they see the competitive advantages to be able to be flexible that that breaks that model pretty quickly yeah i think you hit the nail on the head there sean i think it's it's the ability for these companies to incorporate their brand into into the the fact that they're selling these products, they want to market it a certain way to their client, uh, to their end customers. And I think the, for instance, the the hockey bundle is a perfect example for that. These platforms just don't give the capabilities to do that easily and quickly. That's the other side of it is you want to run a weekend deal. It's a sort of a last minute thing. Marketing team wants to do that and, and they see some huge upside in it. But the package, the software package doesn't actually allow for it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And retail is all about the customer experience. And so I imagine any anything you can do to maximize that is just critical to your business because it's so competitive out there. I'm wondering if we were talking about some some challenges that retailers are facing that are pressuring them to modernize. And I'm wondering, are there challenges around the modernization itself or around the move to cloud technologies that are specific to the retail industry that you know, are just harder for them for whatever reason. Sean, do you want to? Yeah, I could start with a couple of examples. And one is like every industry, once you start expanding past a certain region, you're, you know, you have different tax requirements or things like that, that you have to take care of, right? And especially when retailers expand across national boundaries, there's always these kind of rules, but there's also some subtle ones that you you may not think about where if if you have a certain type of data, for example, that data gravity of, like I talked about a product, a, a good example of it is, let's say you have a two by four because you sell on the East Coast of the United States and you have one supplier for that two by four. From a retailer's perspective, it's, it's a two by four. It's got a SKU number. It costs well, lately it costs about 12 bucks, but it's supposed to cost about $2. But what's interesting is if you have the same retailer on the West Coast, the supplier of that two by four is a different company. You have Georgia Pacific on the East and you have Weyerhaeuser or somebody else on the West. And just something that sounds simple like that, or sometimes you don't even think of it from a technology perspective, when you put put this in the cloud where you don't have that delineation between the two, it could cause a lot of problems, right? You're, you're not just from the retail of, of purchasing that, but there's a whole back office side of retail, which is the suppliers want to know what their price is. They want to be able to see when the inventory is low on the West Coast, not the East Coast, and, and different things like that. And so, Part of the process that we go through with Swift is give you the opportunity to talk through questions like that so you don't tie yourself down with technology um, in a certain way. And, and that's very, very common, especially as, as companies start out small and grow to big. Yeah, and I'll, I'll also say the way, that we, the way that we approach with using Swift, the way we approach looking at, for instance, like an e-commerce process flow, there's many systems that make up that that interact with each other, that make up that. Sean touched on something really interesting, which is when we look at it from the lens of the business process, we're not looking at it from this system is this technology, this system's this technology over here. And we can start to make decisions that uh, of how the system wants to behave, how the, the entire e-commerce process wants to behave. I, I want to say that some of the challenges that, uh, that retailers are facing 
are around the fact that they are locked into these COTS products. They had invested in these products in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. Uh, it's really difficult to hire just from a straight execution standpoint. It's a very specialized skill set. But if we now start to look at these blocks as business processes, we can start to think about how we might replace these with, with new technology and be able to hire uh, hire for that new that new tech. Or it's a way to retain talent and bring in some new talent and, and such. So, oh, that's so. What you're saying it sounds like is, and I, I hadn't really given that a lot of thought. Although, and maybe in other contexts, but yes. So. If you're, if you, the more you're building with open source components, the more you're building with, with technologies that that people actually use, that developers and engineers and architects actually use from place to place. Now you can get someone from healthcare or from the web or from wherever to come to a retailer and be Absolutely. able to help out rather than saying like, yeah, do you have experience with X this platform that was developed 20 years ago? No. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that's really, really, really important too. It's, it's app modernization is not just about the tech. It, there's a huge cultural aspect to it. And if, if you don't address the cultural aspect of it, it, tech is tech at the end of the day, right? You need, you need people to work on this, to, to maintain this, to operate, uh, operationalize this. And so we could get into a whole conversation about culture. It's, it's probably important. If, I, I just remember listening to some of our retail customers, right? Dick's T-Mobile among them talk about the cultural changes. And it was even, even going as far as I don't Dix, it was like, we changed the way, way people sit, <laughs> we laid out, we laid stuff out, but like it made a different, it made differences. And I think, because retail is an older, I think it wasn't one of those, one of those industries where people were set in their ways. It was very brick and mortar. And then it wasn't all of a sudden. And it, the, the growing pains are pretty stark. Yeah, absolutely. And Swift, the Swift method, if we, if we think about what we're actually doing, we, we get into a room with a group of people. These, these folks might be VPs, directors, they might be software engineers, they might be designers. And we're, we're uncovering what the business process is. And, and at Dick Sporting Goods, for example, we had that exact assortment of folks. And what's interesting is when you get in that room with these people, there's, there's, there's times where you don't even realize this person sits right next to you. And, and they work on the same system. You had no idea. You're just there to problem solve and build this process. And you forget about titles. You forget about, you're just focused on, let's lay out what Dick's Sporting Goods e-commerce really looks like and figure out where the problem areas are. Where am I feeling pain? It creates this, this level of trust amongst the team that, that in, I think Sean will agree in our experience, it's, it's really, it's a, it's a great team building exercise and you get this common context that you probably didn't have before. And it's it's all done organically through Swift and the event storm and the Boris. And Sean, maybe we can maybe we can touch on on that aspect of Swift. If that if that makes sense to you. Yeah. Well I, I think you've kind of hit on it. Like the technology, when people talk about modernization and period, it's usually a technology first decision. And what we found is the technology is actually the easiest <laughs> part to solve, especially if you figure out what's, what the problem is and, and then you can apply the technology to it. But the hard part is the, the people and the culture and just understanding the business process and the, and the problem in general. And that's kind of why, as we're going through Swift, we're asking a lot of two-year-old type questions. We keep saying, why? Why this? Why that? Why? And But what that does is it helps us with everybody in the room just drive out the fact, like I mentioned with the, the two-by-fours, right? Uh, well, we want to expand to another market 
and this is ah, so this is important to you. And then people say, well, yeah, that totally makes sense. I don't know why we didn't really think of it before, but it's not something that's solvable just from technology. But when we're going through this process and discussing, um, a big part of it is the ability to model what your assumptions are. And that's where Boris is, where we actually talk through that kind of process. And, and with everybody in the room, you get the different perspectives. You get the people representing the sales staff that says, hey, I want to keep track of my commissions. And it's like, oh, how does that fit with pricing and marketing when we give them a discount? And do they get a full commission off a of full retail? And you get all those kind of discussions that come up. And the end result is you can model the system and say, well, I don't know how I'm going to solve it yet, but I know where it needs to be solved. And it's in this one component. And just that right there makes the solution much easier to apply technology to, right? Or at the very least, make sure you're not going to break something. And I, as you're talking about this, Sean, I'm just thinking about the kind of the chain of a product as it goes from being in the warehouse and being assigned a SKU all the way through to getting into the hands of the customers. And there's so many different people and processes and systems that that product touches. Is that... It, it seems like that's something that Swift is just such a like sophisticated and, and yet so simple way to solve for, kind of mapping out that process and those relationships and how everything comes together. Can you talk a little bit more about how like how you how you do that and how Swift kind of solves for that? Sure. Yeah, and I think a big part of it is just having it's almost like mobbing, right? You're getting as many people in the room as you can. And you have, instead of trying to spend time finding particular personas and walk through from a, from a perspective of a customer, I want to see this. It's more of what are the systems doing? What do we have to have happen there? And we talk through what we call thin slices of functionality with those, with those folks. So when we're having a discussion about pricing, if the person in the room who is most experienced with dealing with the vendors, the people that provide the products, they may say something as simple as, hey, price to my supplier means something totally different. It's the same product, but to them, the price is the wholesale price that they're going to get paid. And it really doesn't take that long. It's more of a mind shift of how you think about the problem. Once you start seeing that you can discuss those different perspectives at the same time. It it makes it much easier to get through that discussion, right? And and see kind of the the forest through the trees, right? You could zoom in and talk about a specific case or a specific slice of functionality, but Swift is all about relationships and it's the relationships between the software components, but probably more importantly, like Brandon said, it's the relationship between the people that own that. And it just makes it much easier to put yourself in somebody else's shoes to drive out that solution. Yeah, it kind of traditionally, you you build something, you throw it over the wall to the next person, right? This Swift and Boris and you know the event storming in Boris forces you to have that conversation about what your contract is. What 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 does your domain need to do and, and, and fulfill with this other domain over here? So pricing and promotions, how does that interact with when you're actually viewing products on uh, on a catalog page? Search, how does search interact with actually pulling up results when it's searching inventory management? 
So yeah, I think I think that that's really important. Swift is all about relationships. It's literally it's it's the people relationships, having the conversations in in a room together, talking about the problems that you're all facing and uncovering those, uncovering blockers, and also talking about how the systems behave with each other. I, I want to rewind a bit, if you don't mind, and talk about something you had, we mentioned earlier. The this idea of growth through acquisition and this idea of like. You're like companies, and we see this in all fields, right? But companies start acquiring other companies, and then all of a sudden, it's a family of three different companies all kind of sharing the same mother brand or whatever. And I know that can be difficult from a from an engineering perspective to reconcile all those different systems. I'm just, I'm just curious what that looks like in retail, and like how we, how we've been able to help help clients solve for the fact that yes, they have just now these conflicting systems theoretically doing the same thing. Yeah. And, and that is one of the biggest challenges, especially in retail, where you'll have a sporting goods company acquires a party store or something like that, which seems totally unrelated. But in the end, it's like, well, you have you have some core capabilities that are the same. Right. And what we do with Swift is as we go through that, we're not really looking at the, the classification of retail store. It's just about what kind of products. Everything, everybody's got a product. So as we talk through with Swift, we say, yeah, there's a core capability everybody shares called product that manages the products. And today, those products are managed in two places in, in the store that's being acquired and different products in the, the parent company, but it's still products. And so as we talk through that with Swift, similar to the way we look at a legacy system to strangle off capabilities, it actually works the same way through acquisition where we see that there's a central core functionality managing products or customers or marketing. And then we can map that to today, the product is managed in these five different store systems, but we're giving them that landing pad to start with. In the future, if you want to get product information, you go to one place, our, pro- our new product capability that under the covers may have the smarts to go to those five stores to get what the information they need. But the other thing that does is it gives you the ability to start saying, now we have a landing pad where we can start pulling that out. Maybe the party store that got acquired uses an e-commerce platform. We can start moving into our new product system and strangle that off to where we have minimal impact as we're going. Um, and, and all of the systems that supported a back office for that store that was acquired is it's the same kind of story. It's rare that you have something so unusual in a company that's being acquired that the concept doesn't exist in some other place. And we're just simply finding those concepts and team structure maps around that too, right? If, if you have developers at two different stores that each work with products, well, now you have a home to combine the people along with the business functionality and the software. And uh, Boris is the the exercise we would be be looking at to, to do just that, which Sean's mentioning. And what, what's, what's interesting is with that, imagine two, two companies two different product domains, two teams that manage that. The consolidation of that is happening through the Swift, through Swift, through Boris. And once again, it goes back to relationships. Now you can have a conversation with these two teams. They have domain knowledge in both both systems and we can have a, have a conversation on how do we adapt one system to the other to actually have a common and consolidated product view. I think, Brandon, would you say it's, we, we use it to discover the 80% 
commonalities. And then we can focus on that. And the other 20% snowflakiness becomes less scary at that point, right? You're not focusing on that negative. Yeah, I think I agree with that. That's that's a fair, fair way to put it. I think we've been talking a lot about kind of the e-commerce experience. And I wonder if there are elements of that in-store experience that you've come across in these modernization engagements with retail customers that that have kind of presented unique challenges or have just been interesting uh, use cases. Sean, do you want to talk about inventory? Yeah, well, I'll lead into it. Okay. Um, but but inventory is a big one, but kind of leading into that as well too. Like when you're in store, your your shopping cart. Like the reason why in e sorry the reason why in e commerce they have the concept of a cart is because in a store you're pushing that cart around, right? But it it behaves a little bit differently, right? When you put something in a cart in a store, nobody knows yet that it's not on the shelf. Right. And when you pay for it at the point of sale in the store, it's it's kind of the equivalent of when you're checking out e-commerce, you have an order. And so but but you can see the concepts are still the same. The implementation slightly different. And there's maybe some kind of ancillary processes that you have in the store. Like I mentioned commission before, if you're helped by a salesperson, you may need to track that in store. But online, you don't. But you still have those kind of core capabilities. But the, the inventory part, like managing that inventory is a little bit different. And Brandon, I'll like lead you on that. And I have some interesting observations with the similarities and differences there too. Yeah. So managing inventory in the store is, is a challenge. And we had, we had one, one client in particular, they, they were selling shoes, but they could only track what shoes were in their store in any, they would have a 72 hour lag. So you could walk into one of their stores, ask them uh, about a shoe, ask them if they had the size. And the only way that the associate that was helping you could actually tell was going back in the back room and scanning through whatever inventory they have because they couldn't trust that that what the computer was telling them was actually accurate. So it's interesting because like Sean was mentioning, there's obviously a lot of data to collect throughout and there's returns and when somebody comes in the store and returns something, it doesn't always get right back on the shelf, but you, we need to have an indicator that it's back in the store, right? And that usually happens at the point of sale. So inventory was a, was a challenge with a uh, customer we had, and we we were able to work with that that customer and essentially build out near real-time inventory management, where no longer would you have to <laughs> go in and go into the back room and scale the shelves and and find out find out if the if the shoe exists or not. And a lot of the work done there was Swift was a part of it, but it had more to do with the the cultural, the way the engineering teams worked together to solve the problem, the way they structured themselves, the the quality they were baking in through practices like pairing and, and test driven development. It's a little bit different from from Swift. Swift, but Swift did have something to do with understanding what really resides in this domain of inventory management in this specific use case. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about inventory that's kind of interesting too, is there tends to be a, I'll call it a technology overcorrection too, right? And and this is where Swift has helped where um, you'll have, you'll see 
retailers or anybody for that matter who want to think in terms of I want to know real-time inventory. I want to know how many of these products I have at this particular given point in time. And a lot of times people will, will say, okay, well, from a technology solution perspective, we could implement that with event sourcing tools like Kafka, and then they start going down this technical rabbit hole. But with Swift, what we'll do is, again, ask stupid questions. So, so tell me why. Why do you need that? And and often the answer is, well, I need to know when I need to reorder that particular product. And it's like, do you need to know exactly or is it fuzzy? Like when you get down to 10%, then you reorder. And if it's 10%, then you don't need to go through that extra dramatic expense just to have real time. And and even asking stupid questions when you're talking about the e-commerce versus the in-store. On e-commerce, if somebody puts a, something in their shopping cart, it's like, okay, well, we mark that. But how long do we keep it there? Like at some point they, they walk away, they don't buy it. Do we take it? Like, is it really available for sale again? And, or how do we tell if somebody's got something literally in their cart in the store? Like it's not available for sale anymore, but our real-time inventory says it is. And then pretty soon people pull their hair out when all you had to do is say, is it good enough just to know when you're close? And and that's where similar to the fault tolerance versus high high availability discussion. Like, do you want fault tolerance? Like it never breaks because that's an order of magnitude more expensive than just having resiliency and fault tolerance. And same story here, but you have to have a, a vehicle for asking those questions to where people are comfortable too, right? Because it sounds like a dumb question, <laughs> but it drives out a really good answer. That's funny, just from a user experience perspective too, like psychologically, as soon as you look online and it says, two left, hurry in. And then you're like, well, surely two people aren't buying that thing before I get there. And then you get there and it's not there and you're disappointed. <laughs> but again, if there's a low inventory, that could have been any number. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, just I think it, it, your expectations are different. Like if you see a specific number, you're like, well, where are they? In, in, in Swift, what I would be doing is saying, ah, Derek, you're describing other core capabilities like analytics and marketing that that are related to inventory in a weird way. And we may not talk about that right now, but, but we see, ooh, that's important. And that's actually a value add that we can give the customer. It's like, well, now you have a, a nice area where you can start doing that and saying, well, let's 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 just say that there's two left and how do they react? Or maybe I should rephrase that. Let's when there are two left, let's see how people react, right? I'm not suggesting people arbitrarily put fake numbers up there. But 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 it's interesting because now you see that measuring how long things stay in somebody's electronic shopping cart suddenly bumps up the ladder as far as priority and how important that can be to your business from a software perspective, where if you didn't go through this kind of process, you may miss that opportunity completely. Yeah. And it also just brings to mind this, this little example you have, Derek, of two left and then you run to the store to get to get it. It the importance of of the omnichannel retail experience and having, you know, that information online that maps to the specific store. And then maybe your phone, like the Home Depot, their app is incredible. You can you have a whole map of the store to find exactly what you're looking for. And just having those systems per each retail location tied in really tightly to the mobile, usually the mobile app experience. And all these different capabilities that are needed on the back end to make that happen. 
Yeah, if we if I don't know if you want to talk about another example, we did we touched a little bit about COVID and and how that affected retail, and uh, we have an example just to talk through about curbside pickup or buy online pickup in store. And when we were breaking down one of these COTS e-commerce platforms, by breaking it down with Swift, we were able to help the client, uh, help a retail client talk about their core capabilities, as Sean mentioned earlier. And by having this mapping, we could take a complex thing like we have inventory uh, across a thousand stores across the U.S., and somebody places an order, they want to do a buy online, pick up in store, but it's not in the store that's close by them, but we can ship it inter-ship and make it the best customer experience. By, by breaking down into core capabilities, teams can start to have complex conversations about that type of thing in really simple terms and really get to the root of what systems need to interact to be able to make that user experience happen. And so that's that's the beauty of Swift. It, it it takes it up a level that you're 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 at a at a uh, business process conversation and not a how are we going to implement this in the current systems we have. That's that's the next conversation after we decide what's going to get impacted, which teams need to be involved, and and you can do it quickly. So this 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 um, particular customer shifted entirely to curbside pickup during the the shutdown. They had a lot of stores that were closed in different states during during shutdowns early early March of last year 2020 and they were able to keep the doors open by by shifting their focus to curbside pickup by online pickup in store so they could still meet their customer needs the customer demands they had while staying keeping their business running yeah and i think that particular customer i think that was Dick Sporting Goods they That's did correct. it in in like a week or they did it in some really short amount of time Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, but they were like they were already going down that path, though, right? And that's kind of the thing. Like they were doing it for for holiday pickup and for whatever. They were starting to ramp up that capability. So, like, it just yeah, it goes to show like yeah, being <laughs> being <laughs> heading in the right direction is is probably. I want I want to ask too. To speaking of like physical stores, what about because the one thing I keep hearing and I don't know how real it is. I guess not being in the in the field to have a good sense is that the customers would want to deploy edge like legitimate edge like locations inside their stores. They want to have Kubernetes clusters running in, in, in their stores or in their restaurants or, or, or whatever the case might be. Like, is that, is that a reality? And also, is it a good idea? I'm just, <laughs> just, just curious. It's, it's a, it's a reality and it can be a very good idea. And as an example, many large retailers essentially have data centers in each of their stores like Home Depot for example Walmart most of these most of these companies have in the back room they've got a rack of computers that are keeping track of their inventory locally in large part because the infrastructure wasn't available to have something in the cloud right and it's it's really important that the cash registers are working so you want to have that kind of edge as close as you can. And in other cases, like a pharmaceutical, like a drugstore company, they had the need for edge where it's really just functionality in the store that's managing the security and the prescriptions, for example, that you don't want that spread across a multi-region. So there's two reasons I've 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 seen it start out as edge and remain that way and that one is because we we can't there's so much traffic to keep track of our 30,000 products on a Home Depot shelf and and it was much easier to implement something where we have what amounts to a Kubernetes cluster in store that 
that manages all of those different domains and capabilities, manages the cash registers and even the people and the scheduling and the inventory, and then maybe periodically phone home to the mothership to try to keep things in sync. In that example of, do you really want real-time inventory or is close enough, close enough? This is this is a good example where you get that local resiliency or security and you could take advantage of the cloud for everything else. And and even do things like in the cloud where we know that it seems like today we've got these this many items, so we'll go ahead and sell them through e-commerce, but we may do the logistics through the stores and say, we don't have it at this store, but we can ship it to that store and maybe not even let the customer know that there's some of that intra-store shipping going. And that wouldn't be as possible if you if you couldn't phone home to the mothership periodically, but more importantly, have that the, the computing power at the edge whatever that means to to solve that problem for you. It's it's just a lot less risky. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the resiliency is the key there. Having the ability to to have a store be self-sufficient and, and continue to run even if there's a spotty internet, you know, power outage, that sort of thing. Well, in all your time working in this space, are there any like lessons learned or gotcha moments that you'd want to share with the folks out there? <laughs> The, the biggest gotcha moment I had was things like retail can be much bigger from a, a business standpoint than you realize. And we've touched on several of those, like something as simple as knowing that there's another side to the, the wholesaling. Like when when a product's being stocked on a shelf, there's a vendor that's putting it there. And the vendors may have spiffs or something that is where they have marketing incentives and and each of those those kind of capabilities that we see they tend to model the same thing from different perspectives and for me personally it was just a big gotcha to assume that oh yeah retail is easy or e-commerce is easy right it's like well it doesn't have to be completely hard, but there's a lot of facets and perspectives. But what I learned as I you know, was going through that painful process is each of those perspectives has a similar facet. And what you start to see is those patterns repeat themselves, right? A spiff is the same thing to a salesperson where it's like they, they get incentivized to sell a certain product and they get money for it. Well, it's just like our marketing team's trying to do with a little Gretzky package to a customer. And it's like, that's interesting. It's just flipped on its head a little bit. But but if you didn't see that at first, which I didn't the first few times I worked with retail systems, you you miss again those opportunities. But yeah, they're they're definite gotchas. And I'll 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 say the big takeaway for me is there's a lot of opportunities in retail to for the brand experience to change. Right now, a lot of these companies bought off the shelf products. We we would see the same name software packages over and over and over again. And when when retail starts to get away from that, they're able to do some more interesting things with technology. For instance, Dick's Sporting Goods can start to tie their little league software with how they're selling some of their products and they can create a whole different experience that another retail store that sells not sporting goods, they sell apparel, they might tie an experience to their product and, and, and be able to do that through technology. But they can only do that if they start to get away from these off-the-shelf packages that try to dictate how you do retail 
and focus on what they do best. If you're an apparel store, you have a certain brand, you have a certain demographic you're trying to chase, and, and the technology needs to be needs to be developed in a way that that actually um, highlights those the, the experience that you're trying to provide, not try to fit in a box that that you purchased off the shelf. So that was the big takeaway from from working through through this that I was seeing is a lot of these companies were trying to fit into this this generic thing instead of focusing on what they're really good at, what they really want customers to get from their from their brand. Yes, yeah, so if you don't mind, I know we're, we're this this one's pushing long, but I have one more question that hopefully we can ask a quick, quick answer to because I'm, I've always been curious. Like, we, we, and this has to do with with the idea of like seasonality, right? I remember when the cloud computing first, when infrastructure infrastructure as a service first became a thing, companies started going, oh, we don't have to buy whatever, nine gazillion servers to handle our, our big season or whatever. But I'm curious, like, what, but, but that's still a challenge for, for a lot of retailers, I think, is, is dealing with seasonal demand. So what is the, given the infrastructure on demand and the software-defined nature of just about everything now, like, what is the, what is that limiting factor that still keeps some retailers from, from being able to actually meet demand when they know what's coming? I think part of, part of the, the, factors i guess that holds people back is if if they're not thinking of when you said seasonality it's really that implies like summer winter or something like that but it's it's really just showing that there's a dynamic nature um of all of this like i mentioned the new iphone comes out so it's a it's iphone season and that means x that means you have to scale something for the the part of your system that's taking iPhone orders. But in other cases, seasonality, you know, is, well, as we're approaching fall and snow shovels or something like that need to be put on the shelves. And that's more of an inventory kind of thing, right? But but you're thinking in terms of that dynamic nature. And then you start thinking of other core capabilities like, well, a physical store. So even though it's coming up on winter in Miami, I don't care about snow shovels anyway. So so there's there's really a, by looking at that bigger picture, you see those relationships between each of those, right? The store location affects things, the time of year affects things, and the state of products and trends affects different things too. And it, it can be challenging for for software developers to think kind of big picture like that until you get other software developers with different sets of expertise and especially business folks in the same room just to enlighten people that all they have to do is take a step back and think that way. And that's where the technology tends not to be the biggest barrier for that. It's more of thinking about how that problem manifests is is really the key. All right. Hey, listen, guys, super informative. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Eye-opening. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.